The text for this morning's sermon is Luke chapter 1, 57 through 80. Luke 1, 57 through 80. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came upon all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I ask that you would speak to us now through your word, that we would understand with our minds and feel in our heart the great news that is being brought to the earth 2,000 years ago at the birth of John, the great ministry He's given. Father, help us as we ponder these things. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The last uh, few weeks, we've been able to look at the promised uh, conception of John. And the promised conception of Jesus. Now we're going to look at John's birth. And next week on Christmas Day, we'll look at uh, Jesus' birth. And to begin with, 
I want you to really think about something with me. Not just in passing, but to think hard about what I'm about to ask you. And the first thing is this. Have you ever felt afraid? Have you ever felt afraid before? Have you ever feared death? Have you ever felt lonely? Have you experienced the pain of a broken relationship? Have you ever been frustrated with the way things are happening in your life? How about this? Have you ever felt shame where you wanted to hide reality from others? Hide what's really in your heart? Have you ever felt guilt for something you've done wrong? Have you ever felt like someone's out to get you, to attack you? Now, it might not surprise you if everyone in this room answered yes to all these questions. You might not think of this as some profound thing. You might say, this is what it means to be human, Sam. Everyone experiences these things. So here's my question. Is this normal? Is this just what it means to be human? Because isn't it true that all these things seem wrong? Which would mean that normal would be something different from these things? Think about it for a minute. Do we not seek to put an end to all of our fears? If it's just normal, <clears throat> let normal be. <clears throat> or how about this? Do we not seek to avoid death? To live as long as possible? Do we not seek to find companionship if we're lonely? Do we not desire to get out of our loneliness? Do we not desire relationships that are healed and good and fellowship and love? Do we not seek to hide our shame? If shame is normal, then why do we try to hide it? Do we not seek to justify our guilt? You see, Sometimes it is helpful to ponder what we think is really normal. Because isn't it odd that everyone in this room has experienced all those things and yet everyone in this room seeks to avoid those things? It's as though something has gone wrong. Something is not right. Something is not normal. It ought not be this way. Have you ever been to a funeral of a child? Everyone in the room is saying, something wrong is here. Every funeral I've been at, you feel the sense of, 
This is not the way it's supposed to be. And if people say to me, well, this is what it means to be human, my response is, well, then why do you do everything you can to avoid these things? It's good to think about life. To think about why things are the way they are. As we consider the birth of John the Baptist, I want us to ponder the significance of his life. I hope that when you read this text again, and when you celebrate Christmas again, you will feel something and understand something more of the greatness of Christ's birth and the culmination of history. Everything before Christ, every prophet was pointing towards this moment in history. And after that moment in history, everything is looking back to it so that the songs in heaven are singing about what happened when Christ came. So let's look at the first verse, verse 57. And I want you to consider the perfection of our Savior. To glory in the perfection of our Savior. You may know about the Savior. I'm asking that you glory in Him as we consider this text. Ponder the significance of John's birth. Verse 57. Now the time came. Now the time came. This is not just any time. This is the time. This is this whole part of human history. This part of your Bible. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. And she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. The birth of, the, of a baby is a joyous time. People love to come and celebrate when a child is born. But how about with a woman who is barren, who is old? This birth could only be possible by the mercy of God. Her relatives, her friends, they come. There seems to be something extra special about this birth. And then in verse 59, we read, and on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. You would always name your child after the father or the grandfather. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. Now we already talked about what does John mean? It means God is gracious. That's what the name means. God gave Zechariah the name when He spoke to him through Gabriel. He said, this will be the child's name. God is gracious is the message I want coming from His mouth. 
No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. She said his name shall be John. And Zechariah writes, His name is John. It's as good as done. God has sent this child. And His name is John. And they all wondered. This would have been surprising. This is weird. They're going a little untraditional here with the name. And immediately, His mouth was open. Now we remember, because Zechariah didn't believe Gabriel, right when he told him that he was going to have a son, he went mute and deaf. And Gabriel said, until these things take place, you'll be mute and deaf. Now, I'm guessing this was a long eight days after the birth of his son, and he still couldn't hear, and he still could not speak. But in verse 64, it says, immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke blessing to God, and fear came on all their neighbors. They knew what had happened to Zechariah. They were already wondering what is going on here. Now all of a sudden, his mouth is loosed and fear came on all the neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. This would be good gossip. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord is with him. That's a good question to ask. What will this child be? What time is it? What's the big deal with what God is doing at this point in time in history? What's with the vision? What's with being deaf and mute? What's with the name? What's with the miraculous birth? What's with the miraculous healing? What is God going to do at this time? And my prayer is that you leave here more amazed than when you came at what happened at this time. So when Zechariah's mouth was loosed, he prophesied. And that's what we want to spend the rest of this sermon looking at. And then first, I want us to consider that you know your enemies. This prophecy that Zechariah speaks is all about salvation from enemies. And so we're going to ask two main questions. What is the salvation? And who are enemies that are being talked about? Look at what Zechariah says. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. Redeemed. That means they were in slavery. To be redeemed is to be set free and has raised up a horn of salvation for us 
in the house of his servant David. Now a horn of salvation is the power. The horn of a bull represents power. There's going to be one from David's line who's going to be powerful and he's going to bring salvation. Redemption and salvation is on the table now from the house of David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old that we should be saved, so there's salvation again, from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hands of our enemies. There it is again. We might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. How could that ever be? How could we serve God without fear and holiness and righteousness all of our days? That seems like an absolute impossibility. But this is the prophecy. And then in verse 76, we find out the child's mission. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High. For you'll go before the Lord and prepare His ways. He's the last Old Testament prophet that is going to point to the one last prophet, which is Christ. And here's what He'll do. He'll give knowledge of salvation. That's one of the things we want to figure out. What is this salvation? To His people in the forgiveness of their sins. And because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. There's people sitting in darkness in the shadow of death. But a sun is going to rise on these people to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of His public appearance to Israel. To be saved from our enemies. I wonder if you know which enemies Zechariah is prophesying about. Let's consider who our enemies are. I mean, you look at God's people, Israel. Their enemies were the Amalekites, the Edomites, the Amorites, Bashan, the Canaanites, the Syrians, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Midianites, the Philistines, the Syrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans. God's people have always had enemies that oppose them. But what does that have to do with you? Who is your enemies? Who is our enemy? Well, I think we need to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible to find out who and what our enemy is. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. If you're going to feel the weight of what it means that the time came, that Jesus' birth has come, that He's going to give salvation, then you need to know 
your enemies. If you're going to be shocked at the great mercy of God revealed at this time, then you need to know who your enemies are. If I came and told you that I had, that I had a cure I wanted to give you for cancer, you wouldn't be that excited unless you knew you had cancer. You need to know what your enemy is if you're going to be excited about the salvation from it. So if you remember in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, we read, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now God has already created man and woman in His own image. They're created to be put in this earth, in this creation, in this garden to reflect His glory. And God told them that they were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know what happens. Satan comes and tempts them. Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? They say no. He says we can't eat from that tree. So he tempts Adam and Eve to doubt God's Word. Your first enemy that you need to recognize is Satan. Whose number one goal is to get you to doubt God's Word. Did God really say is really His main weapon. Because if He could get you to doubt His Word like Adam and Eve did, He got them to doubt God's truthfulness. That's not true. You won't really die, Satan said. And He also got them to doubt God's goodness. Oh, God just wants to keep you from having knowledge. He doesn't want you to be like Him. Two horrible lies from Satan. God isn't good and God isn't true. And so, our enemy has one tactic to get you to sin against God, to doubt His Word, to glorify something other than God. That's called sin. Paul said, sin is to fall short of the glory of God. You're created to bring glory to Him, to image Him. But when we doubt His Word and doubt His goodness and think we know a better way, we seek glory for ourselves. And then here's why Satan is such a snake. Because he comes and tells you there's really life outside of God. There's really life outside of His Word. And then when you sin, you know what He does? He comes to you as an accuser. And He says, don't you know sin leads to death? You're going to die. You have no hope. You're a sinner. Satan accuses sinners to, of their sin to God. His destructive weapon his, is, is His accusation 
of our sin, which He tempts us into. So the first enemy we need to see is Satan. Second enemy is sin. He tempts us to sin. We die because of sin. Adam and Eve died spiritually in a moment when they sinned. Their hearts were turned away from God and death became the process in the world because of sin. They began to die physically the moment they sinned. Sin is rebellion against God, falling short of His glory. And the Bible tells us sinners are enslaved to it. Now, what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? Immediately, they felt shame. They felt nakedness. And what they did absolutely immediately, right after they sinned and they felt shame, they went and found fig leaves and sewed them together and made the first bit of clothing the earth has ever seen. Because now the world's a different place. Now that a snake has come in and deceived man to doubt God's Word, and shame has entered the world. We want to call this normal or not. And then what happens? So shame enters the world, and then they... They begin to fear God and start hiding. God starts calling for them. So now fear enters the human race. They gotta hide from this God because they know they're sinful. Now, Adam begins to blame Eve for his sin. And you have broken relationships in this world. They're hiding from the God they know is good. They know He's just. And so they have to cover themselves up, cover their shame up. they got to hide from Him. They know judgment is coming. And now the relationship that they experienced as such a blessing has now become difficult. And do we want to call this normal is the question. If you all agreed with the intro to my sermon that you admit you're afraid, that you have the fear of death, that you've experienced broken relationships, shame, and guilt, the question is, is there any hope? What could be, what could there be for hope in this world? And there are third enemies, so I'm giving you three enemies here, Satan, sin, And what does sin bring about according to God's Word? Death. Death is an enemy. It's a real enemy. Spiritual death happened immediately. Every human being born after Adam and Eve were born spiritually dead, rebelling against God. Their natural tendency was selfishness. If you've had children, you see this. You never have to teach your child how to be selfish. They know it naturally. Is that normal? Or do we immediately try to somehow subdue this selfishness? Have them consider other people. Why do we do that? It's because we know 
this is not right and this is not normal. So now we have Satan, we have an enemy, we have an accuser, we have sin, which is our nature. It's not just, we don't sin because, or we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's our nature. That's, that's the only thing that can come out of us. We're spiritually dead. And now physical death is in front of us. What hope, who could ever save us from this enemy? And then it's amazing in Genesis 3.13. We read this, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman. There's going to be enemies. You're going to have offspring. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God says there's going to be a battle on this earth between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And throughout the whole Old Testament, we see this battle play out between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And the serpent is going to strike the heel of the seed of the woman a heel is going to be bruised, but the serpent's head is going to be bruised. A head wound can be fatal. A heel wound is not fatal. And I wish I had time to weave all these prophecies and all these examples of the battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. I'll just give you a couple examples but I don't have time to give you many. So what does God say to Eve right after this? He says, in pain, you're going to give birth. So yes, this is a curse. It's going to be painful to bring about children. Relationships are going to be painful from now on. But the amazing thing is God said, if you eat from the tree, you'll die. But in His mercy... They don't die immediately. There's going to be hope in this offspring from the seed of the woman. The enemy that accuses us of sin and points out that death is in store for us, his head is going to be bruised from the offspring of the woman. And then right away when she gives birth, it's no wonder... In Genesis chapter 4, here's what we read. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She didn't view this as a natural process. She realized that this is part of answering God's promise. I've gotten a man by the help of the Lord. And so she gave birth to Cain. And again, she gave birth to her brother Abel, 
Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the garden. What do we see right off the bat? We see a battle between a seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and Cain kills Abel right off the bat. We see war. We see enemies with the first children of the human race. And and then we get this we get the list of Cain's children and we get the and we end up with this man named Lamech who said uh, he murdered a man for wronging him. He took revenge 70 times 7 compared to Cain. This Lamech was proud of his murderous ways. And this is in the line of Cain, the seed of the serpent. But then we read in uh, Genesis 4.25, We read this, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So now Seth comes onto the scene, and lo and behold, he has a Lamech as well. And this Lamech, when he is born, says he's going to, through him, the land curse is going to go away. And then we just have all throughout the Old Testament, we see the battle between the seed of the woman and uh, the seed of the serpent. In Genesis chapter 12, when he makes a covenant with Abraham, I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He repeats it in Genesis 22. He, this promise is given to Rebecca, our sister. May you become thousands of ten thousands. May your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. And you remember when the Pharisees were talking to Jesus? And they said, Abraham's our father. What did he say? He says, the serpent is your father. Children act like their father. And he says, your father is of the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning, Jesus says. Pointing all the way back to Satan and to Cain. And this murderous line. And I could, I wish I could go through these, but I can't for the sake of time. But weaves through the whole Testament talking about the enemies of the Lord having their head crushed, the enemies of the Lord licking the dust. All this imagery goes back to Genesis 3 where we find out what our real enemy is. And when John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, John the Baptist is baptizing, so he's here to prepare the way Uh, for Christ to get people prepared that they will be repenting of their sins and looking to God for salvation, the Pharisees show up and what does he say? Matthew 3, 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? See, John says, what are you doing here? children of the snake. He knew their hearts weren't repentant. 
He knew they weren't looking for salvation. They were looking for glory for themselves. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 12 says to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. They said, we're the children of Abraham. We're the offspring of God. And he says, you can't speak good because you're evil down to the core. You're a brood of vipers. And what is he telling them? He says, you're in the line of Cain. You're murderous of heart. And they did, didn't they? They turned Christ over to be murdered, the Son of God. It was in their heart to do it. And so we see all... That's what I'm saying. When we get to our text and it says the time came, hundreds of prophecies, the battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman has raged on for so long. And it seems like the seed of the woman, though she is better, she's yet sinful. There isn't a perfect deliverer that has yet come. And so, what is the salvation that Zechariah is prophesying of? And this brings us to our last point. Rejoice in your salvation. Your enemy is the devil, sin, and death. And they all are woven together. And in your sin, you have a nature that tends towards away from God. But here's the salvation. The birth of Jesus is the moment in time when God sent the seed of the woman. The final one. The perfect one. The one who was not like anyone else. The one who never sinned. And let's ask the question, can Jesus defeat Satan? Can Jesus defeat sin? Can Jesus defeat death? Because if Jesus is going to be the Savior, He better be able to handle those three things. Because that's who our enemy is. Is He able to defeat our enemies? And let's just look back at this prophecy. He raised up a horn of salvation, verse 69, for us in the house of His servant David as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from old that we should be saved from our enemies from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. When Jesus came, God's tender mercy for mankind is on display. It's to put on display the heart and mercy of God. You know, people will say, if God was a loving, loving God, He would never send anyone to hell. He, he would never send someone to hell eternally. The most shocking thing is that all sinners don't get justice. Get what they rightfully deserve. The thing Paul struggled with is how could anyone ever be saved and God's justice remain intact? Because to get rid of our sins would be to throw away justice. That's Paul's problem. How can anyone ever be saved when all of our lives are broken with sin? 
But at this time, it was to show the promised mercy to our fathers to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to His father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hands of our enemies, what does it say? Might serve Him without fear. Could the fear of death be taken away? Could sinners serve God even when they remain sinful without fear of death? Is that possible? Could they be righteous and serve Him all their days? And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High. You'll go before the Lord, prepare His ways. You'll give knowledge of salvation. And then we get... Here's where we figure out what salvation is to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. Our greatest enemy is not those who seek to kill us. It's our sin which holds us guilty before a holy God. But this salvation is even from our sins. Because of the tender mercy of God, there it is again, whereby the sunrise shall visit us on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. The only thing a human being, if they're honest, can do when they know they're a sinner is sit in a shadow of death waiting for the moment they're going to meet their Maker. Meet God. Is there any hope? But at this time when John was born, he was going to be the prophet that was going to speak of this Son that's going to rise up and the shadow of death begins to disappear. And fear begins to go away. And shame begins to be covered because sins can be taken away. This is the time it is. And to guide, look at the end of verse 79, and to guide our feet to the way of peace. How could we ever have peace? We're fearful, we're sinful, we're guilty. Is there a way where I can really walk in peace? Not expecting judgment at the end of the road? John was born to proclaim that that day was here. And we read that the child grew, became strong in spirit, and was in the wilderness into the day of his public ministry. Now I just want you to Listen to a couple of these verses. You tell me if Jesus isn't the perfect Savior. Colossians 2.13 And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. How could God forgive our trespasses? by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. We all have a folder. And in that folder is every sin we've ever committed against our Creator. It's not tough for God to keep track of our life. But what Paul tells the Colossian church, he says you were dead, but God made you alive in forgiving your trespasses. How did He do that? This record of debt against you that stood against us with its legal demands because God is a judge, He set aside nailing it to the cross. And then He says this, 
He disarmed the rulers and authorities, that's the devil and his demons, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Remember Satan's only weapon? It's to say, hey Sam, you're a sinner and sin leads to death. But once Christ came, Christ ripped that sword out of His hand. Because now, when He comes to me and He points out sin in my life, I can say, Satan, my sin was nailed to the cross. That debt was wiped away. So you're powerless. I can agree with you that I still sin. But I will live. Though I die, yet shall I live because Christ rose again. Christ has defeated the penalty for sin, which is death, and He proved it when He rose from the grave. Christ has taken away my shame. Christ has brought me into relationship with God that was broken because of my sin. Christ is the one that can begin to change my selfish heart and to count others people more, more, other people more important than myself so that my relationships can start to be healed. Christ is the only perfect Savior that can do this. One more verse, Hebrews 2.14. Here's what we read. Here's Christmas. You might not have seen this before in Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's you and I, He Himself, that's Jesus, partook of the same things. This is Christmas. God comes down and He takes on flesh and blood. Why would He do that? That through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, and that is the devil. So Jesus took on flesh so that He could die. And when He died, He takes the power of death out of Satan's hand. He takes the enemy's sword away from Him and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subjected to lifelong slavery. Jesus became flesh so that He would die to take the sword out of Satan's hands so that we don't have to sit here and be enslaved to fearing death. We have a resurrected Christ. For surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Now get this, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What does propitiation mean? Propitiation means wrath-absorbing one. If He's going to make propitiation, all my sins have the wrath of God that are going to come against it on Judgment Day. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross, He's like a sponge that endured God's wrath for my sin. My sin never got shuffled under the rug. God crushed His own Son. The seed of the woman's heel was bruised. He took on the wrath of God and He satisfied it. That's what it means to be a propitiation. And if He satisfied God's wrath, then there's no condemnation left for me. So the reason why we can sing, 
these joyous songs and we read the words that the time came. We need to realize this isn't just any time. This is a time that before the foundation of the world, there was a book about a lamb who'd be slain. In eternity past, it was looking forward to the cross. In eternity future, we're looking back because God's love and God's mercy is shown most clearly on Christmas. And why did Jesus come? He came to go to the cross. What blessing. What good news we have for sinners. All those things I started with, let me just read them back to you one more time. Let me ask you, do we have a good Savior? Have you ever felt afraid? Have you ever feared death? Can Jesus take care of that? He can take care of that. Have you ever felt lonely, relationally broken? Christ came to make your relationships right again. And most importantly, your relationship with God. Have you ever felt shame? Have you ever felt guilt? Well, that was taken away. It was nailed to the cross. Your record was nailed to the cross. Have you ever felt attacked by an accuser? Well, God ripped that weapon right out of Satan's hands so that when he comes and tries to condemn us because of our sin, we just point back to our big brother who came and saved us and redeemed us and made us part of the family of God. Father, thank you for Christmas. Father, we just think of a cute little baby in a manger and we think of gifts and we think of angels singing in the sky and yet we forget that the whole reason He became a human, that He came down to us, was to save us, to give us a new birth, to make us alive, to defeat death, to defeat our enemies. You came to die. You sent Your only Son in love Father, I pray that everyone here would prove to be children of Abraham. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteous. We can be children of God not by works. None of us can be good enough, but by faith in the Son of God. Lord, help all of us to be children of Abraham. Those who were looking for salvation, who understood they had an enemy and who knew only You could save us from from our enemies. Father, thank You. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.